What happened to you? And you're gonna get some furniture. When I get around to it. Charlene's gonna leave me. Why? Not no steaks in the freezer. With everything we've been doing? Vegas is Super Bowl, clean me out. And you're gonna get an old lady. I'll get around to it. You got something else on the side? Nothing regular. She got something else on the side? No. You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I don't know what you're doing. Remember Jimmy McElwain on the yard used to say, you want to be making moves on the street, have no attachments, allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. Remember that? For me, the sun rises and sets with her, man. Yeah. Okay. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 254, Heat. Another long run time, although I eat up every minute of it. There was never a moment where I'm just ready for the movie to be over. Yeah, this might be our longest movie that's been requested by a listener because this is listener request number 21, courtesy of Bill... Bill, thanks for making it easy on us. This is a perfect opportunity to go into the tease that I left you with at the end of the last episode regarding the future of listener requests. So I think for 2022, we've reached a point where the listener requests have been coming in a little slower, which is fine. It's it's gone down to a, a little bit of a trickle. Yeah, really. I think it's okay. If people want to pile on these long, epic movies, I'm okay with them coming in at a slower rate. Right, yeah. So, I'm just saying that as far as our listenership goes, maybe everyone who's interested in a listener request has already sent them in. If not, please do so. Yeah. But we're continuing to usher in a new wave of ass clowns and (laughs) bring new listeners to the show. So, I think we'll build the pipeline back up. I'm saying that people who have already submitted a listener request are free to send in another one for 2022. Oh, no. Okay. We are going to probably limit it to about once a month at most. So if none come in, then we may never do another one. I'm not saying that we will definitely get another one. But if we do, it'll probably be like once a month. This could always be it. So there could always be a backlog 
if we do get more than one and new people who have never done a listener request will take precedence much in a similar way to ev- that every episode of this show could be the last one every listener request could be the last one yeah i'm not being presumptuous and thinking like oh we're definitely gonna get more i'm just saying if we do it'll probably be about once a month anyone's free to send in another one even if you, we've done multiple by you or whatever whatever it is clean slate for 2022 send them All in right. at greatest pod make sure you're following the show on twitter there send in your listener requests and we'll get to them when we can just know that it may take some time if we got eight right off the bat then you might wait till august if you're the eighth person so just so you know that's how it's gonna work okay make sure you're subscribed on apple podcast podbean wherever find us on letterbox zach 1983 matt crosby let us know on twitter if you'd like a sticker that pretty much takes us up to date. We're talking, of course, about the 1995 Heat. I believe that there's actually another Heat from the 80s with Burt Reynolds, but unlike a lot of other films where if there's multiple sharing the same title, I'll put the year in parentheses, I'm not going to, out of respect. I wasn't realizing until reading about it for this episode that this basically Michael Mann took this story and did like a made-for-TV movie first right yeah it was supposed to be a tv thing we'll get to that in a minute okay one of the all-time awesome blu-ray menu screens yeah (laughs) just unbelievable i could leave it on for hours i don't have the blu-ray i did have a dvd of it that i bought which the first time i ever watched this movie it was a blind buy going to best buy in like 2006 or 2007 they did some re-release of it but I, i am interested in owning it i gotta say after watching this viewing I'm a five on this movie now. I thought I was like a four or four and a half. I'm 100% a five. I'm pretty sure that new Blu-ray that I have, you can get at Best Buy right now for pretty cheap. I'm pretty right. sure I saw it there the other day. Not You're not going to get a sleeve at this point. Or should I just wait it out for the 4K? You could do that. I'm sure there will be one. Um, there might even be an import one at this point. I don't know. Written and directed by Michael Mann. This is somehow the first Michael Mann film that we've done, although I believe at several points I've had some of his films in the queue. It just uh, hasn't happened yet. I have a confession to make. For a long time, probably throughout a lot of the 2000s, I kind of thought of Michael Mann as more of like a Michael Bay type, like this guy that's just directed big action movies that were kind of lame. I would just associate him with Miami Vice, the movie, and Public Enemy, which I... Public enemies. Enemies, yeah. <laughs> but obviously, over the years now, I've gone back and rewatched a lot more of his older stuff, and he's like one of the great neo noir directors. Public enemies, I'm not a big fan of. Miami Vice, I think, is sort of cool, especially on rewatches. There's a lot more to it. I think there's like different cuts of that film. Yeah, I only ever saw it the one time, so I would revisit it. But yeah, it, there's definitely like a delineation post. Uh, I want to say like Ali or something. Yeah, you know, at a certain point, sure, it, yeah. there's diminishing returns, I think, no. which is true for yeah. most directors. Right. I mean, you got to figure I was like a teenager going to movies around the time that that stuff was coming out. The budget of the film was $60 million. The box office was $187.4 million. It was released December 15th, 1995, so we just missed the 26th anniversary of the film. I actually started my research on that day just a few days ago. 
it was a Christmas movie in a sense because of when it was released. But the thing that's okay. interesting is that Casino, which also stars Robert De Niro, was released November twenty second, nineteen ninety five. So just a few weeks earlier. Wow, what a year for him! What a year ninety five was, and this is on the heels of ninety four when we were like, oh, Shawshank and Pulp Fiction came out on the same day. All of these great films being released in quick succession. The nineties, I think, are super underrated as a film era. It was like the second coming of the uh, new American cinema of the 70s. So many great independent filmmakers were coming of age. Guys from the 80s like Michael oh, yeah. Mann were coming into their own. We had like the indie sort of revival. Yeah, and nowadays I can't even imagine one movie coming out as good as those movies, let alone two in such short order. I know, just so desperate for a movie to reach your top of the year list. So let's get into my yearly rant about the Academy Awards. <laughs> Heat, zero nominations. <laughs> Not even technical nominations, which is crazy. It's beyond ridiculous. A lot of people would probably consider Heat to be one of the best films in the 90s. It's certainly one of the most influential and important films. I think so many filmmakers oh, yeah. have used this as a template for their films I Most notably, Christopher Nolan. Absolutely, that's what I was going to say. Which we'll get to later. But Casino also only had one Academy Award nomination for Sharon Stone for Best Actress, and that was it. And then Shocking. you go back and you look at what was nominated, and you're like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> this is insane. Yeah. And it just brings me to my point, which is every year now, because of Twitter and social media and the online debate and discourse about everything, we get so upset People freak out about this movie winning or that movie not winning or whatever the thing is. And folks, I say it 10 million times a year. It doesn't matter. Go back and look at this stuff. It never made sense. Yeah, it's always stupid. Wrong more often than right. The fact that neither Heat nor Casino was nominated for Best Picture. Or I guess it's like, it's kind of like the Heisman Trophy. Like You win, but what does it really mean? Yeah, but the Heisman Trophy is more like based on something and then the what does it mean is about what comes later yeah true i don't even think that the oscar's based on something coming before it yeah that's true it's just it's even worse it's just randomness at a certain point i think braveheart won in 95 i'm sure if the voting was redone now i i doubt that that would win even if you don't factor in the mel gibson controversies i still don't think that would be winning so are you not coming to my oscars party this year no, I probably will. We'll see. Everyone has to show vaccination I need to cards. See, yeah, I need to the see door. the nominees before okay. I commit. I think that's fair. I didn't even watch it this year. I know. I was stunned. Well, I have a hard time getting ABC. Yeah, I know. but I, I mean, I know you bitch about it, but I was pretty shocked that you didn't watch it. Heat is based on the true story of Neil McCulley, a calculating criminal and ex-Alcatraz inmate who was tracked down by Detective Chuck Adamson in 1964. Wow, he was an Alcatraz inmate? Yes. In 1961, McCulley was transferred from Alcatraz to McNeil, as mentioned in the film. When he was released in 1962, he immediately began planning new heists. With Michael Pareil and William Pinkerton, they used bolt cutters and drills to burgle a manufacturing company of diamond drill bits, a scene which is recreated in the film. Detective Chuck Adamson, upon whom Al Pacino's character is largely based, began keeping tabs on McCulley's crew around this time, knowing that he had become active again. This is important. This is the thing that jumps out to me. The two even met for coffee once, right. just as portrayed in the film. 
Because when you're watching this movie, if you don't know that, you're like, this is insane. It's the weirdest scene ever. But it's based off of something real. And Adamson, by the way, the real life detective, was friends with Michael Mann. That's how Mann knew all of yeah. this stuff. That scene is like so electric, though, for multiple reasons. It comes out of nowhere. You never think these two are just going to meet up in the midst of this sort of chase, investigation, stakeout, whatever you want to call it. But then, of course, obviously, these two like mega actors coming together in this scene. Their dialogue in the script was based on the conversation that Macaulay and Adamson had. The next time the two met, guns were drawn just as the movie portrays. So, yeah, the main thing of this movie, the big noteworthy overhanging idea the thing that people of course are going to be drawn to and fixate on is the De Niro versus Pacino standoff in the film this is the first time the two of them were acting in the same film together since Godfather Part 2 a movie which they don't share any scenes that's right the two of them were the biggest actors for over 20 years and when I say biggest actors I don't mean biggest movie stars it was a different thing it was like Everyone universally recognized that they were the two biggest actors because they were the best. Yeah, Pacino, as I'm sure we might have talked about at some point, or at least maybe that was off mic in our past. I mean, he took most of the 80s off. Yeah. He's barely in anything throughout the 80s. His performance in this just seems so fun. I kind of wish, I don't know if this was the start of the whole, like him yelling in every movie that he was in, or if that started before this. That was Son of a Woman. Okay. Which came before this. <laughs> well, we'll talk about his performance. There's a very specific reason yeah. of why he's doing that. I think it's great in this movie, and then it just becomes more cartoonish the more he moves on in his career. Yeah, he definitely found a thing that he liked and he went with. This was still their peaks. That's right. Yeah. They were in both their in their 50s at this point, but as we just pointed out, De Niro had Casino the same year. They're at the, the height. They hadn't both started doing... Meet the Fockers. Any dog shit thing that came along. <laughs> Meet the Fockers is like a masterpiece compared to some of the shit that De Niro's done. Well, actually, you know what? The two of them, Righteous Kill might be one of the biggest stinkers I've ever seen in the theater in my entire life. I've never seen it. I refuse oh, to see it. It's awful. You mean the two of them with 50 Cent wasn't oh. enough to keep your interest? <laughs> you know what exactly what's going to happen by like the fifth minute of the movie? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, Righteous Kill came out in 2008, but luckily they they fixed it. They cleaned it up with The Irishman. That's right. Which I think is really fucking good, and it gets better every time. It's a long haul. Yeah. It's a real long haul of a movie. I've still only watched it that one time we went to the theater, but I do have the Criterion, so it's on the short list. You need to rewatch it. I will. I think it's really good. I will. Especially when you factor in... The idea of it being the third part of a trilogy, but a trilogy of people outside of the film, not the characters in the film. It's the perfect conclusion to that mob story with De Niro and Scorsese and Pesci to a certain extent. Pacino is like the perfect complement to it, though. So Pacino's character motivation in the film, which you were sort of touching on, is that there were scenes that were cut from the film of him chipping cocaine like using cocaine a okay. lot off of a key yeah. and stuff like that they didn't go with it in the film but pacino stuck with that anyway so it's sort of like an implied idea yeah that he's out of his mind a lot of the time but they didn't want it to cross over into like bad lieutenant yeah i think they could have left it though it's a high stress job i don't know i think it's better without it 
Okay. Because then it's just like, okay, really? I just, Another I, thing? I guess if they presented it that way, I wouldn't have thought of him as like corrupt or anything. Yeah, well, I mean, it just fits just, in with his whole thing, his, his whole life spiraling. He's blowing a line every once in a while. Everybody's got to unwind. He certainly acts like it throughout the film. Yeah. We'll talk more about his performance and how it works with De Niro's performance when we get to their scene, their big scene together at the diner. Mm-hmm. But I think there's like a perfect give and take with what they're doing. I think so. And how it turns expectations on its head, which is the one who has it all together is the thief and the right. one who's like out of control and spiraling is the cop. And <laughs> him, that's very intentional. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, him talking about his life just being a disaster zone. It's one of the great moments. <laughs> it's the most relatable moment. Yeah. <laughs> Man saw this movie as more of a coming together of all these different characters and moving pieces. And it sort of transcends just the crime genre because it doesn't take the usual beats. No. There's a whole coda onto what you think is the climax, and there's actually multiple climaxes throughout right. the movie that could be the end. There's parts where it feels like you're approaching the end, and then new things are being introduced almost. Yeah. More importantly, most importantly, is probably the idea of making the audience not really sure where to align their interests, not sure who they're rooting for by the end of the film. Yeah. They want you to care just as much about the criminals as the police, which... I think it's effective. ...is more common now. Yeah. But that's definitely a unique perspective to bring into a mainstream film in 1995. Yeah, th- this crew is definitely anti-heroes. Some seem more villainous, but I mean, I definitely think De Niro's character, and even Val Kilmer's character... I- I'm totally, like, on the balcony scene when she waves him off... You know, yeah. oh, I get choked up. <laughs> <laughs> That's just because it's Ashley Judd. That's right, yeah. And you wish that Ashley Judd was that well, invested yeah, in your it, life. It's not just Chris. My son rises and sets on <laughs> Ashley Judd as well. <laughs> I actually relate probably the most to Wayne Grow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought you would. <laughs> we'll leave it at that, folks. <laughs> in 1979, Michael Mann wrote a 180-page draft of Heat. He rewrote it after making Thief in 1981, hoping to find a director to make it, and mentioning it publicly in a promotional interview for his 1983 film, The Keep. In the late 1980s, he offered the film to his friend, film director Walter Hill, who turned him down. Following the success of Miami Vice and Crime Story, Mann was to produce a new crime television show for NBC. He turned the script that would become Heat into a 90-minute pilot for a television series featuring the Los Angeles Police Department Robbery Homicide Division, featuring Scott Plank in the role of Hannah and Alex MacArthur playing the character of Neil McCulley. A little underwhelming compared to what we have for this feature. Renamed to Patrick McLaren. Yeah, I do think that one of the big things that led to the pilot not going forward was disagreement over casting for whatever reason okay. man was like married to these two guys who yeah. i don't have never even heard of and nbc was like really these they should guys? have got caruso to play hannah the pilot was shot in only 19 days atypical for man the script was abridged down to almost a third of its original length omitting many subplots that made it into heat the network was unhappy with plank as the lead actor and asked man to recast hannah's role Man declined, and the show was canceled, and the pilot aired on August 27, 1989, as a television film entitled L.A. Takedown. 
which was later released on VHS and DVD in Europe. I don't know if title. you can find that anywhere now or not. I don't know. LA Takedown's kind of cool. All right. <laughs> Glad you're really sticking to your guns. <laughs> I don't I think can, it's a bad title. I can be convinced. Well, I think that if you're not watching the film Heat, you could think is like a generic title. Yeah, that's true. I'm sure some people probably thought we were doing The Heat no. with Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy. Not yet. Which is a film that I actually think is very funny. If somebody requests it, it could end up on the list. <laughs> Heat was filmed on location. I believe they used 95 locations, which wow. is insane for a film. But definitely adds to the oomph of the movie. They filmed this over 100-something days, so it was almost like they were moving constantly. Wow. Yeah, A lot of movement That's to get to these 95 locations. Production. But yeah, I mean, it seems like almost L.A. landmarks for criminals or just kind of everyday people like they go to like this empty drive-in at one point diners a lot of cool spots yeah i think for people who are familiar with the city of los angeles there's a lot of things they recognize because it's it's very real it's very grounded in a real la well that diner that they're in on the day of the big job that seems like it's from other movies probably the sound is also very cool, and we'll talk about that more when we get to the big shootout sequence. But it's all very loud and very yeah. real. Well, it's hard to watch this on TV in an apartment because the dialogue is very low and then just insane jumps in volume. <laughs> well, the 80s movies that Michael Mann did had like really cool soundtracks. I'm I talking thought. about the sound, though, not the music. Well, yeah, but that's also part of the sound. Yeah. When I think of what I hear in a movie, it's two parts. <laughs> there's sound effects, but there's also the score. Yeah. This... I don't know if I'm blown away by Heat's score, to be honest. It's Less okay. So. Yeah, yeah. I like Thief, though, and Manhunter. Yeah, who did Manhunter? I know Tangerine Dream did mm. Thief. I can't remember, but I enjoyed it. They don't have the Thief soundtrack on Spotify, which is very annoying to me. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> I, I mean, some of the sound is like so intense. I told you that I was like turning the volume down so low for some of the big action set pieces, but then for like some of the dialogue scenes, I was like cranking it just to hear them. Yeah, I think a movie like this is hard to mix for home Yeah, for home view. I find that with the Christopher Nolan movies too, because his action scenes, like it's so loud. Yeah. I would have loved the opportunity to see this in the theater if it ever plays around here on a random retro night or something i definitely want to check this out in the theater yeah i'm in it seems like the theatrical experience is the way to go so the legacy of heat is huge not only in the film world but outside of it because there was definitely real life robberies that were inspired by the movie there was that crazy one that happened in the u.s where those guys were just like walking and dressed in like full body armor yeah Yeah. like that crazy thing that like inspired like a made for tv movie yeah and they found the heat dvd like in the one guy (laughs) or the i don't it must have been vhs or whatever that was a long time ago but yeah all over the world too not just in america there was all kinds of shit it's become a criminal blueprint and real life criminals have approached wow man and been like oh yeah you you were like my training for learning how to do this or do that. Cause a lot of it is hyper realistic. We'll get into some of the specifics of that, but like the reloading yeah. and shit that they do. They mention it multiple times in the movie that this crew is very tight and good and sharp. They are like so tactical. Seems like military trained. Yeah. And man was chummy with a lot of ex cons and he spent time at 
prisons and talk to people and he knew his shit. This was not some guy bullshitting his way through something like this. Right. The details are pretty real. Of course, Heat had a huge influence on Christopher Nolan, specifically The Dark Knight, which he has cited many times. Definitely. You can see it, even the way that the long plot and a lot of different elements all connecting or getting closed out in a similar way. And I think that's why The Dark Knight ends up being the best superhero movie, is because Nolan is taking his inspiration from one of the best crime movies of all time and not worrying about the superhero element as much. Right. He's just taking a heavily influenced heat type movie and putting that into the Batman world. Yeah, and it worked out awesome. Yeah, and The Dark Knight is cool on its own accord. It's not a ripoff of heat. It's, you can just see the influence. Sure. Grand Theft Auto, the video game series, was also heavily inspired by heat. I think specifically Grand Theft Auto 3 and Elements of Vice City, which is also obviously influenced by Scarface and Miami Vice. Sure. So two Michael Mann yeah. things, Miami <laughs> Vice and Heat, and two Pacino things, Scarface. That's right. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the cast beyond Pacino and De Niro. An insanely deep cast. So many recognizable faces. Well, I mean, when you start off with two of the biggest actors of all time sharing like the top billing... Yeah, well, Man was coming off of Last of the Mohicans was this huge, critically acclaimed deal. Everyone was anxious to work with him, and then you attach Pacino and De Niro, and everyone is like, yeah, let me get in on this. And yeah, and that one guy from Last of the Mohicans is in this, right? He's the one cop. Studi, yeah. yeah. We have Val Kilmer, fresh off of The Doors, working on Batman around the same time. Yeah, was a a good-looking man in the 90s, I think. (laughs) A peak. That luscious hair. Kilmer era. Yeah. John Voight. Insane look, insane character. Yeah. What a look. What a wild look. (laughs) For those of you who listen to the show who don't know what I look like, (laughs) if you take Wayne Knight from Jurassic Park and mix him with John Voight from this movie, then you'll get me. (laughs) Wow. Tom Sizemore. Yeah. This is Tom Sizemore playing the Tom Sizemore role. Yeah. Fits right in. I, I mean, he basically was born to play this character in like 20 movies and, and have a career of it. Diane Verona, who was in Romeo and Juliet That's right. the next year. Lady Capulet. I find her to be quite foxy in this movie, respectfully. <laughs> yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah. She has some great lines in this movie, too. Amy Brenneman, who we professed our love for when we talked about Fear Yeah, so last year. We don't necessarily have to do it again, but we could. Oh, yeah, there's going to be plenty of opportunities to talk about Edie, yeah. the saddest woman in the history of Los Angeles. That's right. Ashley Judd, we've talked about already. What's there to say? We'll we'll get excited about her later. Yeah. Wes Studi, Ted Levine, Buffalo Bill. Yeah, kind of shocking to see him show up in the cop role. Well, we'll talk about that. Yeah. That wasn't the first role he was offered. It's the one he wanted. Dennis Haysbert. We're not going to spend a ton of time talking about him. We want to try to keep this episode reasonable because it's literally killing me to do this podcast at this point. It's so much <laughs> so work. Many, so many hours of your life put into this, and then someone's just like, hey, can you guys do a three-hour movie? Yeah. So there's some stuff that's going to be glossed over, so we might as well talk about it now. Dennis Haysbert plays an ex-con who gets sucked into a... Yeah shitty job we'll talk about that a little bit more and then he um, just joins the crew on spur of the moment it's 
an afterthought, but a reminder of the hardships of trying to get back into society. And the randomness, too. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. you're 100% right. And then also the randomness of how this stuff sometimes happens. Right, right. Because maybe Macaulay is feeling pressure to do this job because he knows that Chris needs it. Oh, yeah. He needs the money. Which Chris isn't really shy about. William Fickner, who is in a million things. Would show up in The Dark Knight, actually. Yeah, that's right. I'm assuming that... It seemed like maybe a similar character. Even Nolan just liked him yeah. from this movie because Nolan seems obsessed with this. He has only a, a brief scene, but he's like in a bank but has a shotgun, which yeah. seems interesting. I always liked Fickner. We talked about him in he's Go. He's just one of those guys that just shows up in a million movies. Natalie Portman as her second film ever. Yeah, I know. That's the thing. You're running through this cast and like, by, you get to like the 20th person and it's Natalie Portman. Yeah. She had only been in Leon the Professional, I believe. Although, what a couple of movies to kick your career off with. We're probably going to gloss over her a lot, too, until the end, where there's a little bit more. She has, like, one crucial scene. Tom Noonan, who That's Michael right. Mann worked with on Manhunter. Which, Manhunter is actually, like, a, an incredible movie, too. It's I think just so overshadowed too. by Anthony Hopkins' performance in The Silence of the Lambs. And The Silence of the Lambs is one of my favorite films. Absolutely. So, obviously. But Manhunter is super cool and influential, too. It is. It's actually almost a shame that it's so overshadowed because it deserves its own... I know, and it's like Brian Cox is like probably fine as Hannibal Lecter, but Anthony Hopkins, just one of the defining roles of the last 50 years of acting. Yeah, to your point, overshadows anything that comes out of Manhunter. I think among cinephiles, they hold it up like just yeah. as high. If some, probably higher. It is a super cool movie. I just watched it again a few months ago and really enjoyed it. Hank Azaria, Danny Trejo playing a character named Trejo. <laughs> Another character that will not get a lot of discussion until it's time. Yeah, that's right. He's just sort of around. He doesn't speak a lot. But he has one pivotal moment. Henry Rollins... Playing basically a character he played a lot in the 90s. Tone Loke with his distinctive voice. Uh Jeremy Piven. Wow. Bald. I know. That's what I was going to say. I'm like, man, how did his hair get like so much better after this? (laughs) Oh, I wonder how. (laughs) I'll have to, yeah, have him send me some notes. Mike Kelty Williamson. Send me a referral. Who played Bubba in Forrest Gump. Oh, yeah. He's one of the cops as well. It's a stacked cast. It's unbelievable how many familiar faces there are throughout it. It is. Another thing Nolan would go on to do, too, is just have these like really deep casts. Yeah, it can pay off. Sometimes it's distracting. You can't get too carried away. Not that we're talking about this right now, since we already mentioned it during recommendations a while ago, but I did think that the depth of the cast in the french dispatch was a little much okay when you're not yeah. having all of them even say lines and I they're agree. just there i think so you're like what is going on it almost detracts from what's happening because the audience is confused like okay that movie is kind of dizzying in general yeah i'm seeing it pop up on a lot of people's best of the year list and it's not quite there for me it'll probably be on mine just because of lack of candidates I don't know. Yeah, I've seen a lot of movies that came out this year, and I haven't been blown away by a lot of them. (laughs) Well, that's getting older. Like I said, man, if we could just have Heat and Casino coming up. Anytime you let me borrow something from the 70s that I've never heard of, it's like the best movie I've ever seen, even though it was completely something that no one cared about in the 70s. And like every movie that comes out now, 
nowhere near do I enjoy as much. Yeah. I think sometimes things will get better, though. Yeah, I think so. With rewatches. I think yeah it's just a weird scenario to watch movies sometimes and i don't know we don't we could that's more of an off mic conversation okay yeah let's get to it so yeah i guess we should say this is another film that's probably better if you check it out first i feel that way most of the time but i know some people like to listen anyway we appreciate that which is fine you can do whatever you want but there are going to be some scenes that we gloss over and some of the story we're going to try to keep it simple and straightforward there's a lot of things happening in this movie some of it doesn't always add up to me there's questions that happen sometimes like how does natalie portman even know where his hotel room is at the it's like what is happening that that's one of the weirder things but there's things like that throughout it because he just moved into the hotel yeah it'll just skip to something and Uh you're like okay but whatever like how did this person know this was happening whatever i don't know even off the top of my head, maybe you'll know the answer. Like, how does even Wayne Grow get involved with Van Zant? Like, how did how do they even know each other? How did that happen again? Wayne Grow seeks out Van Zant, but I don't know what. Oh, he must him have off. been there. I'm assuming he must have been there when they were mentioning it. Oh, that's true. He might have still been around. This was before they tried to kill him. <laughs> maybe, but I don't. Know I, yeah, I don't think there's a scene him. where he hears Neil talking to John Voight about what they plan on doing with Van Zant. Van Zant coming back into the story, even though he was a character that we didn't know at all, but this idea that they rob from this guy and then they're going to sell this stuff back to him. Yeah. It's like this whole other branch, but then obviously it plays back into the greater story and you almost need it, but it is, it's such a weird tangent. Yeah. So the movie opens on moving pieces, a lot of different characters setting things up here. We have Neil McCauley played by De Niro. He's a professional thief based in Los Angeles. And he has a crew. Yeah. The crew consists of Chris, played by Kilmer, Michael, played by Sizemore, and Treo, played by Danny Treo. It had been a while since I watched it. My memory was it started right off with Robin the Armored Car thing, but there is a little bit of exposition before that. It does, though. I yeah, mean, it, I you're mean, in it. Right. You're just kind of getting like a montage of them preparing with McCully stealing the ambulance, with yeah. Chris buying the explosives. That's right. But it happens very quickly. It's all like a, a build-up right away. And they're using a newly hired hand named Wayne Grow, played by Kevin Gage, who later in life did end up in jail for a brief stint, and okay. people were calling him Wayne Grow. <laughs> there is one thing. I, the way they talk about this crew and they're so prepared and, and everything, it does seem weird that Neil was okay with hiring this guy because you can't tell that he seems questionable. Yeah, there is an interpretation of this movie where you could say that Neil's whole persona is a little bit of a put-on, that he can't stick to his own thing. Yeah. He gets emotionally invested with Edie. He gets emotionally invested in Breaks a, his own rules. In revenge. He gets yeah, I emotionally mean, Edie... invested in pulling off a job that he knows is too big of a risk at this point. Yeah. Even like when he is home free and he has to go back and finish this Wingro thing. Yeah. In order to prepare the actors for the roles of McCulley's crew, Michael Mann took Kilmer, Sizemore, and De Niro to Folsom State Prison to interview actual career criminals. They would use a couple of guys as advisors, and Trejo was one of them, who had spent time in prison, including Folsom, I believe. 
And we'll talk about the other one who plays into the John Voight character who that's based on, which is also a little interesting. All right. But the film plunges you right into it. The crew robs $1.6 million in bearer bonds from an armored car. Right off the bat, it's super loud and intense. They crash a, I guess like a tow truck, but it's like a yeah. huge tow truck into this armored Some car to knock it over. industrial vehicle. They use explosives to blow into it. The sound is just so loud. They use a stolen ambulance as their getaway car. They use these hockey masks a la Jason. That's right. As cover. But yeah, it is clear right right away. You're like, this is no rinky-dink crime outfit. These guys know what they're doing. Yeah, there's a lot of efficiency, but things quickly go off the rails because during the heist, Wayne Grow impulsively kills one of the armored truck guards. A second guard is killed when he attempts to respond by pulling his concealed weapon. McCulley orders the last guard to be eliminated as well so as not to leave any witnesses. It's a tough call because obviously the heat is going to be on them now. Yeah, more But so. it's the right call because there's no benefit in leaving a living witness right. now. LAPD Lieutenant Vincent Hanna, played by Pacino, takes over the investigation. And he's a real take charge motherfucker. Oh, yes, he is. Strutting into that scene. He knows what's up. He knows everything that's going on. He's paying attention to every yeah. detail. I don't get the sense that he's losing a lot of arguments about jurisdiction. No. In fact, he has one, I think, yeah. later and <laughs> shuts that down right, right away. Hannah has a strained relationship with his third wife, Justine, played by Venora, and a mentally unstable stepdaughter, Lauren, played by Natalie Portman. There's not a whole lot with Lauren until the end of the movie, which I yeah. think is one of the weaknesses of the film. There's but not do, many, but... Yeah, they do a couple things, though. They definitely imply that he has an investment in her. Yeah, but she's literally only in like I know, two 30 seconds yeah. of screen time until the end, and you're like, okay, they're just throwing this at us now. One of his right-hand men is Bosco, played by Ted Levine. He also has Wes Studi and Williamson as well. Those are all on the cop side of it. There's a vagrant near the scene of the crime who pushes around a console TV. They call him console TV, man. <laughs> and he overheard the word slick. Oh, yeah. They thought that they were saying it to one of the guards. I actually think that Michael was saying it to Wayne Gro. Yeah. But whatever. They heard the use like of the word slick. slick. This is a huge plot point in the movie, and a lot of a lot hinges on this. Almost a shocking amount. That this ends up being the inn. This is basically what gets them found out. I know. It seems like such a stretch. It is so crazy that this is the thing. I know. I just can't imagine that really happening. Look, this did not go as planned. It seems like there would have been something else as the inn to these guys. Yeah. I don't know what, but it feels like they never would have gotten this based off the slick thing. Obviously, if somebody robs an armored car, it's going to be a huge deal. But killing the three guards, it becomes a national news story. Yeah. That almost isn't even illustrated in the film until the big shootout when all of a sudden the press is all over it. But right. th- at that point, they have IDs. They know who it is. You do have to wonder about the money, though. Obviously, we've come into this movie where these guys have pulled off X amount of successful heists. Neil, you would think, has... I, I can't believe he doesn't have the nest egg built up. He's never bought furniture. <laughs> It's sort of unclear to me how long he's been out of prison Yeah, at this point. But look at the rate that they're doing heists, even. They have like one lined up immediately after this, it seems. 
Yeah, they're really going for it. Yeah. Now Chris is gambling it all. Away. Yeah, he's got thirty k on the Raiders game, the night of this heist. Million six. Forty cents on the dollar, six hundred forty thousand to you. Nine hundred fifty front money. Get you the rest two three days. No who on these. Malibu Equity and Investments. Roger Van Zandt. Owns banks in the Caymans. Runs investment portfolios for offshore drug money. Stuff like that. So? So? He ripped off his bearer bonds. Yeah, he's got insurance. That's the point. He collects 100% from the insurance. He's a player. Maybe he buys his bonds back from us for 60% of their value. Make 40% on top of the 100%. Sell it back to him instead of going to the street that's an extra 320,000 to you. Try it out. Kelso called. About what? The score he's putting out wants you to look at. What do I need his score for? I got my own. It says it's clean in low eight figures. 9 a.m. tomorrow. What happened out there? Don't ask. Macaulay's fence, Nate played by John Voigt, suggests that he sell the stolen bonds back to their original owner, money launderer Roger Van Zant, played by Fickner. Just a wild look from John Voigt. <laughs> Long hair. Yeah. This was the start of Voigt transitioning to character actor. He was a pretty big actor throughout the 70s and 80s. That's true. But his career was on a downturn, and Mann had to convince him he really wanted him for this part and got him. Well, he's had a successful career as a character actor, I'd say. Nate is based on real-life former career criminal Edward Bunker, okay. who you might know as Mr. Blue from Reservoir Dogs. All right. Who he actually is. like That guy, he's not an actor, but he was in Reservoir Dogs as Mr. Blue. He's wow, that old okay. guy. Gotcha. And Bunker also served as an advisor on this film as well with Treo. Obviously, the crew is incensed with Wayne Grow. Just unstable, unprofessional, psychopathic behavior. Yeah, you would be like, who brought this guy on board? Who who vouched for this guy? Not unlike a Michael Madsen from Reservoir Dogs, by the way. True. Unprofessional. Adrenaline junkie. So they attempt to kill Wayne outside of a diner, but he manages to escape. One of the few times the crew totally drops the ball. Absolutely. I don't know how they let this happen. All just staring at this squad car for just way too long. Yeah, they had the whole plastic bag trunk set up going they were like ready to do it (laughs) (laughs) they were gonna do like uh, a good fellas they all just start stabbing him in the trunk that's like me walking out and i'm like hey i gotta show you something like after we stop recording (laughs) i'm like hey look at my trunk there's just plastic in it (laughs) it's like jackie brown you just drive me around the corner (laughs) to an industrial park in the aftermath of the first robbery it becomes clear that nobody involved in this story has a great home life we meet charlene blonde ashley judd chris's wife and chris is a degenerate gambler in need of cash there's a lot of tension in the home oh yeah boy this was striking a familiarity (laughs) (laughs) questioning slightly and he's like flipping out like punching the wall neil furnitureless emo love it living in a world of blue out by the ocean in a house that Reminds me a lot of some of the shots in Manhunter. True. Justine doesn't understand Vincent's work. She's pissed that he is so committed to this life. That's the thing with Vincent. 
I think he describes himself as what he chases. That's all he is, is what he chases or something mm-hmm. like that. And he's the one that is living on the edge. True. There's the unseen coke habit. It's almost like he lives with too much emotion when compared to the restraint of Macaulay. Well, it's just this life, obviously. He talks about it. Look, Chris has this gambling addiction. Michael, later on, you know, it seems like he's addicted to doing this stuff, doing these jobs. He makes a comment about it. Yeah. Like, that's what he lives for. I feel like our main two dudes here, they're addicted to the job. Whether it's being the cop or this criminal, I don't know if you want to say mastermind, but the guy who's hatching these schemes all the time. I, it just seems like they live for it. And it's led to them being devoid of being able to have a personal life of any type that is functional. I think it should be pointed out that half the time I'm probably going to say Neil, and half the time I'm going to say Macaulay, and half the time I'm going to say Vincent, and half the time I'm going to say Hannah. And sometimes I'll say De Niro and Pacino. Well, that'll be you. Okay. (laughs) I at least know the character names. Yeah. This is really a rewatchables movie. (laughs) They've done it three (laughs) times. I don't know if we want to like go down the road of trying to do impressions of Pacino, but I do love the part. This is the Pacino impression movie because she's got a great ass. Like that has become the definitive Pacino impression, I'd say. Well, he just yells so many so many different lines yeah. and it just these crazy deliveries. <laughs> I had coffee with Macaulay half an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I got three dead bodies on a sidewalk off Venice Boulevard, Justine. I'm sorry if the goddamn chicken yeah. I, got all, overcooked. All my impressions are just me. It, I can't change my voice. Oh, yeah, neither, neither can I. <laughs> if I ever tried to do a Pacino impression, it's this movie. Yeah. In comes Edie, played by Brenneman, the loneliest, most desperate woman in L.A., a graphic design artist and bookstore clerk. Yeah. In a pre-cell phone dating app era, all you could do is hang out in coffee shops in LA and hope that a stud like Neil sits next to you. <laughs> but he's so, <laughs> so cold. So dismissive. Yeah. When she's just trying to spark up conversation, like, hey, what's with this book that you're reading? And he's like, metals. <laughs> It's like, okay, thanks. Yeah, well, you get it. A pretty girl starts talking to you. You got to shut down immediately. Another question. Lady, why are you asking me all these questions? (laughs) What do you care? She's just not giving up, staying into it. Okay. Look, Robert De Niro is a handsome man. I don't know that he's worth this abuse. And then he's like, oh, okay, well. Hard to believe that Edie's not getting a little bit more attention. Yeah. Okay. I just have to put that out there. But I also get it, though, in yeah. L.A., I've, from what I've heard. I've never lived there. Sure. But you hear stories like this. People who are from another place sometimes have a hard time yeah. getting in, into the city. The city is a, a weird place I mean, I there. I think anybody, an older person trying to relocate to a place that they don't know anybody, it's just tough. You're not breaking into social circles. Oh, yeah. If I had to move now, my God. <laughs> yeah. You'd go from two friends to zero. <laughs> Yeah. Actually, now, now I'm fantasizing about how great that would be. <laughs> Pass the cream. Thanks. What'd you get? What? What are you reading? 
book about metals. Stress fractures in titanium. What kind of work you do? Lady, why are you so interested in what I read or what I do? I've seen you in the store from time to time. What store? Missy and Ingalls, I went there. If you don't want to talk to me, it's okay. Sorry I bothered you. I didn't mean to be rude. I didn't recognize you. I work in metals. I'm a salesman. My name's Neil. I'm 80. You like working there? Sure. I get a discount. There's a whole section of books in my area. What area is that? Graphic design. I do um, letterheads and logotypes at night and stores a day job till I get enough going. What do you do that for? Uh, a restaurant. I did their their menus and um, a small uh, record label. The CDs. I've done two so far. You go to school for that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I went to Parsons. Oh, where's that? New York City. How long you been in here? About a year. You like it? <laughs> Not really. I'm I'm mostly here for the work. Neil and Edie spark up an odd relationship over the course of the film, although she's ignoring a lot of red flags and warning signs like the no furniture. Yeah. Although I don't know that she's ever been to his place. I know you tell me all the time it was just different with real estate, but this has got to be a pricey place to live. The oh, view yeah, yeah. is insane. Well, you might be referencing like Inherent Vice, which was yeah. 1970. Right. I think by 95, with the, the place that the housing market, would have would yeah. be a lot of money. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, could be a rental. Yeah. Either way, though, it's still got to be the monthly payments for a place like that have got to be through the roof. Which I get. I mean, he likes to live well with no furniture, albeit. But if you're trying to save up for this big New Zealand getaway, I'm like, who is he, James Cameron? You just think you could live in like just a little shittier apartment. Amy Brenneman going with a southern accent in the film, maybe trying to keep up with Ashley Judd. (laughs) Not really sure. When he asks her where she's from, she has this long-winded answer that seems borderline insane. I would say so. If If I asked a girl where she was from... And that was her answer. That would be the end of us talking. I'd be, I, I'm walking away now. Well, I'd be like, how do you know that? She's like referencing like the 1700s, that much of a historical background on her family. Scotch-Irish. We emigrated in the late 1700s to Appalachia. It's like, what is she talking about? <laughs> I asked you where you're from. Right. It's just like the Bay Area. You were talking about before the show, a way more normal answer. I would just be like, Binghamton, New York. <laughs> That's where I'm from. Nate connects Macaulay to a guy named Kelso, played by Tom Noonan, who knows about a potential $12.2 million score. It's a big bank heist. I think it's kind of cool to watch a movie from 95 where you have a character who is essentially referencing the early days of the internet and 
the audience and the other characters in the film are sort of like, what the fuck is this dude talking about? Yeah, that is interesting. But he's basically hacking into the early days of transmitting things through what would be the World Wide Web, the early iteration of it. AOL, like dial-up tones, cue. Meanwhile, Nate is in contact with Roger Van Zant, who seems receptive to the idea at first of buying back his own bearer bonds. Oh, hey. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, pretty- good idea. <laughs> Nate is 100% ride or die. He never is apart from Neil on anything by the end of the film. That It's always together. But yep. this is a big swing and a miss on Nate's part. Why does he think this is going to be know. a good idea? Yeah. Charlene and Chris continue to have marital trouble, and Chris shows up at Nate's house, sleeping on the floor. I was saying to you before we started recording that it was very noticeable that Kilmer has this giant purplish cyst on his elbow, and I Googled it immediately. I was like, what the fuck is going on? Did I miss something in this movie? I didn't notice it, but I have heard about this before. Yeah, and it apparently is just from a real-life injury that's like, it's a permanent thing that happened because of something that happened while filming The Doors, where there was like a stage dive gone wrong or something, and landed on the ground and hurt his arm and that seemed like a very transformative performance for him that movie well he became a big star yeah but i I thought that he like got real into the idea of being jim morrison probably yeah it is a great performance because for someone who was not alive during jim morrison's life but having seen the doors several times the movie you just sort of picture Jim Morrison oh, yeah. as Val Kilmer. Like, yeah, he definitely. just became him. Right. The look was perfect because back in the days of getting CDs from the library when I was like in middle school in the 90s, yeah. you'd get that double disc Best of the Doors <laughs> with a shirtless yep. Jim Morrison. He looks exactly like that. I had some Kilmer of those does. CDs. Yeah, I know. But I think there was like stories of him wearing leather pants for like months. Well, yeah. Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah, and then he never gave them up. <laughs> McCulley's got a code, which he reiterates here to Chris, allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. This message really did resonate with me for a while. I like never wanted to be attached to anything. Even having like apartment leases freaked <laughs> me out. I've gotten way better. but Yeah, but you're not a criminal, though. No, I know, but... Like, there just... is no heat in your life. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's the opposite nothing of nothing going on. Well, and what I figured out over time is I'm way better off with some sort of structure in my life. Without it, oof, <laughs> just not good. But yeah, you know, what are you gonna do if the heat's around the corner? It's like, are you gonna give up this Blu-ray collection? Oh yeah. <laughs> and believe me, folks, there could be heat around the corner at any time. There's some skeletons <laughs> in the closet. <laughs> Chris is just like, hey man, when he's talking about Charlene. The sun rises and sets with her. Absolutely. Macaulay is not really understanding, but we're going to find out I over the course he... of the film that he sort of transforms into this mindset a well, little yeah. bit more and more. I think a little bit. Ex- I think he accepts it, though, for Chris. He's like, it's not for me at this point, but I think he, he understands it for Chris. Yeah, because he does everything he can to keep it together for them later. Yeah, you don't really know the full history between these two, but there's definitely a closeness that exists between Neil and Chris that's even beyond anyone else involved with the crew. Yeah, because when he gets to his house and he sees Chris sleeping on the floor, he picks up the phone and calls Charlene without even yeah 
having to think of what the number is. Right. He just calls over. It's like, hey, he's here. What's going on? <laughs> After like every heist, Neil is like, okay, we should be like good to retire now. And like somehow Chris is already in the hole again. Yeah, he's in rough shape. He says they're fighting about not having enough steaks in the freezer, which means not enough money, I guess. Although it seems like they could downsize that house. They've got this nice house with a pool and everything. Yeah, and just one kid, which is a baby. Right. I did love whenever Neil calls Charlene on the phone and he's like, what's going on? And Charlene's like, husband and wife stuff. The way that she says that is so sexy. (laughs) (laughs) That hair is on like my arm stood up. This is at my place. What's wrong? Husband and wife stuff. I'll let him sleep it off here. Man, it's a shame that Harvey Weinstein fucked over Ashley Judd's career because she definitely should have probably been in a few more big movies. She's always great. Yeah, I love her. Check out Bug, directed by William Friedkin, if you haven't seen it. Yeah, if you want to. Thank you for recommended on this show before. Have a great Ashley Judd performance. However, Charlene isn't exactly being faithful as she is in a hotel room with a man named Alan Marciano, played by Hank Azaria. Yeah, which you gotta love the oblivious Chris because Neil like asks him about it and he's like, "No." In all no, of Los no Angeles, way. how did Neil end up next to this fucking motel? Yeah, and see her. In a motel room. It's like, how did that happen? <laughs> there are some crazy coincidences in this movie. Oh, this sure. movie yeah. is chock full of right. coincidences. Yeah. After Alan leaves, McCully barges into the hotel room and demands that Charlene give Chris one more chance. <laughs> kind of an odd confrontation, actually. Yeah. Like, you're not really expecting that that's what it's going to be. He's worried, though, that this personal drama is going to fuck it up. Yeah, and send Chris into a spiral. Yeah, so he just wants to keep things on an even keel. Yeah. Until he gets his last big score. Shit, Albert. Listen, man, what, what you doing coming in for, man? You crazy? This ain't Disneyland, man. You were man. supposed to get back to me last night. Where the fuck you been? I couldn't break free, Vincent, you know? Let's violate his ass right now. I do for you. You don't do for me. Is that it? Vincent, man, I swear, I, I was out all night, man. I'm, I'm hitting like one of them flamingo matador yeah, guys, flamingo? man. That's got nothing to do with you me. Know, I'm, I was cutting it real smooth. I'm generating leads and shit for you. I'm a dancer, man, you man, know. Oh, shit. I paged your ass all day. I can't stand fucking paged. Oh, man, I'm man, a speed know. freak. Jack and methamphetamine again. Oh, man, wh- wh- where's your empathy, brother? It's a substance of Empathy was yesterday. Today, you're wasting my motherfucking time. Vincent, man, look. You fall in love? Come on. Did you fall in love last night? Went off somewhere. Vincent. Just tell me that. I'll, I'll settle for it. You know what I mean? I'll buy that. V- Vincent. Give me all you got! Vincent. Give me all you got! I swear, man, my brother, man, my brother, my brother Richard's gonna talk to you. Man. I heard Richard. He gonna talk to you. Richard? Richard. Richard? He gonna meet you, man, I swear, tonight. He's not here, is he? No, he gonna meet you tonight. Tonight? What happened to right now? I, I I employed him because I knew you was coming this a.m. That's a bunch know. of bullshit. No, no, I swear, he he said no, because he in Phoenix. Ah, uh, by Rick, the time listen, I get listen, to man, Phoenix, I swear, I swear, man, tonight's the best be I can rising. do for you. He'll probably leave a note. 
right on the door. Tonight's the best I can do for you, man. You know, he'll, me he'll meet you at BJ's on Alvarado at 2 a.m. Be there. You be there, too. Vince, I can't be there, man. I got, I got things to do, Vince. I got things to do. I got, I got places to be. I got to be there. Don't waste my motherfucking time! Hannah's got some connection with some street-level snitches. Albert Torina, played by Ricky Harris, and his cousin Richard, played by Tone Loke who served time with a guy, an ex-con, who also used the name Slick all the time, and they traced the use of the word Slick to Michael Chirito, who's Tom Sizemore. This is the biggest jump yeah. that you have to take in this movie. Somebody just... Not somebody that goes by the name Slick. Somebody that just calls people Slick. That's just in his vocabulary. That is enough for the entire LAPD to focus in on him as the lead suspect in a triple homicide. <laughs> it's well, a, I mean, I get that you're going to follow up on everything, but that's not how they play it. They I, play it like, oh, this is the guy now. Well, and the thing is, Vincent is like dismissive of everything that he's told at first. But then when Slick is mentioned, he's like, oh, this is the crew. Hannah's team begins monitoring him, which leads them eventually to the rest of the crew. And their next target, a precious metals depository, which is something that I don't even really know what that is. Same. But I guess they just have <laughs> precious metals. That's why I was reading that book on metals. Book about metals. Yeah. Roger Van Zant agrees to buy back his own bearer bonds, but he's angered by the theft because it turns out that he fancies himself a little bit of a gangster. He's a criminal, too. He doesn't want to put the message out that people on the street can steal from him. That's right. He instructs his men to ambush McCulley at the exchange at an abandoned drive-in movie theater. Just the biggest dope driving this truck up. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of dopes in this movie. Really? Too. Van Zandt's crew stinks. <laughs> However, McCulley and his crew, anticipating a trap... They're always ready. ...counter-ambush and kill the hitmen, leaving McCulley vowing to kill Van Zant. Yeah, Roger Van Zandt. Yeah, who's this? You know what this is. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I sent a guy to deliver the package. He didn't call. Is everything right? Tell you what. Forget the money. What? Forget the money. It's a lot of money. What are you doing? What do you mean, forget the money? What am I doing? I'm talking to an empty telephone. I don't understand. Because there was a dead man on the other end of this fucking line. The scene where he calls him on the phone, he's like, I'm talking to an empty phone. <laughs> yeah. That part's pretty awesome. badass. I think so, yeah. That, that might be De Niro's best delivery in the whole movie just because it is such a killer fucking move. You got to make him look strong, too, for the end of the film. There's got to be a credible threat here. Obviously, Pacino gets all the flashy, give me all you got, give yeah. me all you just like yelling stuff. And the way Neil is through most of it, you don't really think of him as the killer of the group. 
Well, that would be Wayne Grove, but he's yeah. not like a permanent <laughs> part of the crew. Or Chris or Michael even. I mean, they seem a little bit more on the violent side than Neil would be. Well, it turns out that old Wayne Grow is some kind of a serial killer and you He's can got a problem. See why Ted Levine turned this role down and wanted to be a cop instead so that he wouldn't get typecast after Silence of the Lambs because I think he should have just rolled with it. <laughs> Wayne Grow is basically Buffalo Bill adjacent. Similar hair, similar obsession with swastikas. Let me ask you this. Ted Levine does the Wayne Grow role does the Zed role in Pulp Fiction. Does that fuck up his career anymore? Well, I don't know. He probably had more hopes. Not that Ted Levine's had a bad career, but he never really yeah. had anything as noteworthy as Buffalo Bill. That's right. He was in the first Fast and the Furious, or was that the second one? <laughs> I don't remember. I think it's the first one. Yeah. But it, it might it, be the second one. <laughs> <laughs> Dynamite. All right, well, I don't remember the cast of each individual Fast and the Furious. That's they sort okay. of blend together yeah. to me. I think it's the first one. Well, I know it wasn't The Rock at that point. No. <laughs> Wayne Grow kills a young prostitute. Some people refer to her as a child prostitute because I think she's supposed to be under 18. Oh, wow. He says the Grim Reaper's visiting with you, which is a chilling moment. And you're like, what movie is this? It comes out of left field. I know, because he's kind of... It seems slightly different than the character that we knew earlier in the movie, who actually just seemed like an maybe, idiot. It, maybe he was on drugs or something during the heist. That's the impression that I got. Like, he's just unstable. But this is, like, a way more of a Buffalo Bill type. This situation also pulls Hannah away from his wife, Justine. But it also sheds a light on Wayne Grow because they mentioned that it fits an M.O. and the DNA is going to match. They're like, he's a serial killer. And... It makes you rethink the part where he kills the guards. Right. You're like, okay, so he just has like a lust to kill here. Yeah, yeah. Because you're like, what is he going on with why he kills this guard? He's acting as if the guard's doing something that he's not doing. Right. But obviously he was just looking for a reason to yeah, kill yeah. him. Which makes more sense now. My initial reaction was like, oh, he must just be like on drugs or something because the guy's doing nothing and he's getting super pissed. So things aren't going great for... Hannah, Justine's had enough. <laughs> I guess the earth shattered. So why didn't you let Bosco take you home? I didn't want to ruin their night, too. What was it? You don't want to know. I'd like to know what's behind that grim look on your face. I don't do that. You know it. Let's go. Come on. You never told me I'd be excluded. I told you when we hooked up, baby, that you were going to have to share me with all the bad people and all the ugly events on this planet. And I bought into that sharing because I love you. I love you fat, bald, money, no money, driving a bus. I don't care. But you have got to be present like a normal guy some of the time. That's sharing. This is not sharing. This is leftovers. Oh, I see. What I should do is uh, come home and say, hi, honey. Guess what? I walked into this house today where this junky asshole just fried his baby in a microwave because it was crying too loud. So let me share that with you. Come on, let's share that. And in sharing it, we'll somehow uh, cathartically dispel all that heinous shit, right? Wrong. You know why? Because you prefer the normal routine. 
be fucked, then you lose the power of speech. Because I got a hold on to my angst. I preserve it because I need it. It keeps me sharp on the edge where I got to be. You don't live with me. You live among the remains of dead people. You sift through the detritus. You read the terrain. You search for signs of passing, for the scent of your prey, and then you hunt them down. That's the only thing you're committed to. The rest is the mess you leave as you pass through. I don't understand is why I can't cut loose of you. This unraveling of this relationship throughout this movie is a joy to watch. (laughs) They still live together, but she basically is like, I'm going to start openly going out with other people. Yeah. Neil unexpectedly makes an offer to Edie to go to New Zealand with him. And she agrees. (laughs) Not really a lot going on for her. No, she's just willing to give up whatever she's doing which to your point i guess is not much but she does have a somewhat of a career i guess well it's interesting the timing of of this so hannah and his men in the police department have started surveilling that's right the crew and they watch them at that dinner scene everybody there seems to be there with a woman some of them are there with children including michael and chris it's a family convention neil's by himself he's the loner and at that point it seemed like he was not going to call Edie back after he left her, after they had sex, he wakes up, he leaves. Right. Something's tugging at the heart a little bit. He's seeing the happiness, maybe, of the other guys. They're laughing and having a good time with their significant others. Obviously, he knows the truth about what's going on with Charlene, but he's hoping they can keep it together. So he sneaks off and calls Edie. Now, all of a sudden, he's wanting to take her to New Zealand. What happened to <laughs> no attachment? He's changing overnight. Well, you get how that happens, though. Yeah. Well, if I met Amy Brenneman hanging out at a bookstore, who knows? Yeah. You'd be like, well, we're ending the pod and I'm moving to New Zealand. <laughs> She's not coming. It's unrelated <laughs> to meeting her. <laughs> I just need to get away from this podcast. <laughs> so they attempt the depository job next. They still are planning on doing this big bank robbery that they were turned on to by Tom Noonan's character, but they've got their sights set on this depository thing. However, Hannah's team has got it all staked out because they've been trailing them. They know what's going on. They've got some surveillance happening, and they're ready to pounce. But in their hiding spot, which is a like a cargo hold, what is that thing that they're in? Like a truck thing? <laughs> it's like the docks from season two of The Wire. Some jackass officer slips making a noise, which McCulley hears, and then has the crew walk off the job just like yeah. that. You're totally expecting Alec Baldwin departed moment here. Yeah, you never really get it. It doesn't happen. He's Especially with restrained. how unhinged Vincent is, you expect him to like really flip out at this because this guy does blow it. Hannah decides to let them go because but it's not going to be enough of a I guess to the point, Hannah is always charge. sort of in awe of Neil to some degree. You get that a lot. And I guess maybe at this point, he's almost applauding that these guys are able to catch on and walk away from this. Yeah. So the crew 
regroups. Everyone gives their assessment on where they're at if they want to proceed with the bank job. The heat's on now. They know it. But Michael's just like, the action is the juice. That's right. And Chris is like, look, I need every job. Yeah, he says, I need this, brother. <laughs> LAPD. Gee, what? Where the fuck did this heat come from? Maybe it's the score they're on to. The place, not us. Because it's been hit a couple of times, you know, something. Assume they got our phones. Assume they got our houses. Assume they got us. Right here, right now, as we sit. Everything. Assume it all. Now we're going to buy the bank package from Telson. I'll front that. That's not a problem. Well, what the hell happens to Van Zandt or 750? Van Zandt. Listen, with the heat we got, you want to play World War II in the streets with Van Zandt? No, I want my 750. And when he gets a pass? I got more motivation to whack Van Zandt than either of you. He is a fucking luxury. Our problem is take the bank or split right now. Do not go home. Do not pack. Nothing. 30 seconds flat from now, we are gone on our separate ways. That's it. Chris. The bank is worth the risk. I need it, brother. You should stay and take it down. That's where I come out. I roll with you, Neil, whatever. Whatever. No, not on this one, Michael. On this one, you're on your own. You figure this is the best thing to do? This is the best thing to do? I got plans. I'm going away after. So for me, the reward is maybe worth the stretch. Well, Elaine takes good care of you. You got plenty put away. You got T-bonds, real estate. If I were you, I would be smart. I would cut loose of this. <laughs> well, you know, for me, the action is the juice. So they're still moving forward with the big bank job. Trejo's in as well. Doesn't really talk much. He's really the driver, so not a lot of on-site action for him. So we spend some time building up to this. The significance is pretty big. It seems like, okay, one last big job. Everyone's got to go their separate ways. The big dirty, as they call it. Chris needs the money. Neil wants to go to New Zealand with Edie, seemingly wanting to get out of the life. And it's a little bit of a cat and mouse game going on between Hannah and Macaulay here. As soon as they get this heist, Chris immediately is putting all of his take on like the Celtics game or whatever. It's like Howard. So I'm assuming that they're surveilling Charlene as well. Is that how they get on to Alan Marciano? Yeah, it has to be. Hannah finds him in Las Vegas. They show up. They're going to use him to get Chris and the whole crew to turn the screws. Pacino just off the rails in this scene. This guy, though, is just like, man, this is the worst extramarital affair to ever get involved in. He doesn't even really seem to like Charlie. (laughs) He's just annoyed by this whole scenario. Azaria playing this weaselly fucking shithead. That's right. Yeah, this scene is great. Like we said, this is the big Pacino often imitated sequence. Let's be honest. 
the real life versions of a Chris and Charlene do not look like Val Kilmer and Ashley Judd. They're way trash. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> it's hard to buy Ashley Judd as being like this much of an idiot. If being a gambling degenerate landed me Ashley Judd, let's go over to the sports book tonight. Can I help you? Are you Alan Marciano? Yeah, and who the fuck are you? Ow, am I? Hey! hey. Lieutenant hey. Vincent Hanna, LAPD. LA, this is Las Vegas. You don't even have jurisdiction here. Hey! Hey, hey, I don't know who the fuck you guys think you're pushing around, but I know people here, okay? Las Vegas PD takes you into custody. You are extradited to Newark on a New Jersey warrant for smuggling cigarettes up from North Carolina three years ago, or you go to work for us. Cut and dry. That is it. Oh, shit. Charlene Shaherless. Who? 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 Were you a fucking owl? The lady you've been talking dirty to on telephone every day last week. Yeah, all right. You know what? You can't tie me to her. Yeah, well, who needs to? Because your ass is on a plane back to New Jersey, Jagoff. Oh, man. I just... Why'd I get mixed up with that bitch? Because she got a great ass! And you got your head all the way up it. Jesus. When I think of asses, woman's ass, something comes out of me. So? So, no big thing. All I want is her husband and his whole fucking crew. Now you're gonna work with Sergeant Trucker here. In the director's commentary, Michael Mann noted that Al Pacino improvised the line because she's got a great ass. <laughs> Hank Azaria confirmed it, saying that Pacino's unexpected outburst scared the hell out of me. Yeah, he did. And that I mean, his look of shock was not acting at all. <laughs> it is stunning. You've got your head so far up it. <laughs> yeah, Pacino's performance in this film almost has like the quality of like jazz or something, where it's just yeah. like free-flowing. All of a sudden, a solo out of nowhere. Yeah, scatting all over the place. <laughs> like, we don't know what's <laughs> happening next. Just doing his own thing. It's, like, unhinged at times. Yeah. But it fits perfectly, even if you don't factor in the unseen cocaine habit. You're just like, right. okay, this guy's insane, <laughs> but he must be a good cop, and he seems to have a good cop's instincts. So you can sort yes. of, like, buy his eccentric behavior. Right. Let me tell you about... A woman's ass. <laughs> when I think about a woman's ass, stuff comes out of me. <laughs> Just one of the most insane things I've ever heard. It's McNulty-esque from The Wire, though. He's just so invested. He is the job, basically. Yeah. It dominates his life. That's his whole persona. That's yeah. all he knows. So now it's time for the big scene. I think a lot of people, when they were getting excited for Heat in 95, were expecting a lot more interaction directly between Pacino and De Niro. It was something everyone was anticipating for decades. And yet, we're deep into the film at this point, a little over halfway, and they have not spoken to each other yet. Yeah, I mean, how many minutes of the movie are they actually in a scene together? It can't be much more than like 10 minutes of the movie. Yeah, this scene, I think, is probably about like six or seven minutes, and we're probably going to use a big clip here. Yeah. But then, yeah, they cross paths at the end, and it's very brief that they're actually together. Once they actually get to the diner scene, it's incredible. Pays off in a big way. Hannah tracks McCulley and pulls him over on the 105 freeway, inviting him to coffee. 
They discuss their dedication to their respective jobs and the limitations of their personal lives. Hannah describes his failing marriage, and Macaulay confirms that he is similarly isolated. You could almost imagine that this is furthering Macaulay into thinking that he's making the right decision. In a weird way, he's looking at this guy's life and being like, I don't want that. (laughs) He makes a good point about it because he's like, Look, I know how much work I put into like being good at this. So for you to like stay on somebody like me to actually give you a chance to catch me, you basically can't have a personal life. Yes. Though they admit their respect for e- each other, both acknowledge that they will kill the other if necessary. De Niro felt the scene should not be rehearsed so that the unfamiliarity between the characters would seem more genuine. Man agreed, and they shot the scene with no practice rehearsals. I think this is the moment where you realize why their performances are the way they are and why they're going to mesh so well together in this moment and why they play off each other so well. You have Pacino, ultra flashy. The eccentric. This is the type of role that an actor really gets to sink yeah. their teeth into to be this crazy. Yeah, right. De Niro is definitely the much more like understated role. Yeah, he's subdued, restrained holding back it's a perfect balance and there's no egos too it's cool because de niro got this script first and passed it over to pacino his friend of a long time and was like hey would you be interested in doing this and he got pacino into it and there's no fear of the other one right which a lot of times i think actors sometimes they want to be the the lead dog they don't want to have to share the spotlight they don't want to be overshadowed this scene is a perfect encapsulation of that idea because Al De Niro Pac- is willing to hang back. Pacino was like, I'll be in it, but I'm fucking going over. Seven years in Folsom. In the hole for three. McNeil before that. McNeil is tough as they say. You looking to become a penologist? You looking to go back? You know, I chase down some crews, guys just looking to fuck up, get busted back at you. You must have worked some dipshit crews. I worked all kinds. You see me doing throat seeker liquor store holdups with a born to lose tattoo on my chest? No, I do not. Right. I am never going back. Then don't take down scores. I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best, trying to stop guys like me. So you never wanted a regular type life? The fuck is that? Barbecues and ball games? Yeah. This regular type life, that your life? My life? No, my life. No, my life's a disaster zone. I got a stepdaughter so fucked up because her real father's this large type asshole. I got a wife. We're passing each other on the downslope of a marriage, my third. Because I spend all my time chasing guys like you around the block. That's my life. Guy told me one time. Don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around a corner. 
Now, if you're around me and you got to move when I move, how do you expect to keep a, a marriage? Well, that's an interesting point. What are you, a monk? I have a woman. What do you tell her? I tell her I'm a salesman. So then if you spot me coming around that corner, you're just gonna walk out on this woman? Not say goodbye? That's the discipline. That's pretty vacant, you know? Yeah, it is what it is. It's that or we both better go do something else, pal. I don't know how to do anything else. Neither do I. I don't much want to either. Neither do I. You know, I have this uh, recurring dream. I'm sitting at this big banquet table, and all the victims of all the murders I ever worked are sitting at this table, and they're staring at me with these black eyeballs because they got eight ball hemorrhages from the head wounds. And there they are, these big balloon people, because I found them two weeks after they'd been under the bed. The neighbors reported the smell. And there they are, all of them just sitting there. What do they say? Nothing. No talk? None. Just, they don't have anything to say. See, we just look at each other. They look at me, and that's it. That's the dream. I have one where I'm drowning, and I got to wake myself up and stop breathing or I'll die in my sleep. You know what that's about? Yeah, having enough time. Enough time to do what you want to do? That's right. You're doing it now. Not, not yet. You know, we're sitting here, you and I are like a couple of regular fellows. I mean, you do what you do, I do what I gotta do. And now that we've been face to face, if I'm there and I gotta put you away, I won't like it. But I'll tell you, if it's between you and some poor bastard whose wife you're going to turn into a widow, brother, you are going down. There's a flip side to that coin. What if you do got me boxed in? And I gotta put you down. Because no matter what, you will not get in my way. We've been face to face, yeah. But I will not hesitate. Not for a second. Maybe that's the way it'll be. 
before. Who knows? Well, maybe we'll never see each other again. I think Heat also is one of the perfect examples of one of those movies that people build up certain expectations in their head, and then sometimes there's certain disappointments with it. I have heard of a lot of people where this movie had to grow on them because their expectations... I'm talking about people older than us who were seeing this in the theater, and they were expecting... Pacino and De Niro sharing the screen. Sure, I get chopping why it up. people might feel a little like hoodwinked or something. You know, you'd have to wait till Righteous Kill for that <laughs> tour de force. <laughs> Just a complete dud. No, but I get it, and I think yeah. that over time people realize what an accomplishment this film actually you know, is. It's kind of like Twin Peaks: The Return a little bit, where oh, we're gonna get Agent Cooper again, and then you have to wait so long. To actually get the real original yeah. Agent Cooper. Hopefully there's a lot of Twin Peaks heat crossover fans. <laughs> I don't know why there wouldn't be. After the coffee, the crew slips all of their surveillance at once. They're still fully committed to this last big score. A lot of stuff happens in short order. We're going to try to move through it. Wayne Grow gets in with Van Zant, who has been living super paranoid. You brought it up. It does seem like weird that Wayne Grow would be able to kind of make this connection but it also seems weird that they would even let him in this building yeah (laughs) he has a look of we're not letting you in he makes a deal to help eliminate mccully's crew and then on the day of the big bank job trejo backs out at the last minute claiming the lapd is following him too closely it's spur of the moment it seems like something's off with it and then McCulley recruits an old prison buddy, Don Breeden, played by Dennis Haysbert, to Who take just Trejo's place as the getaway driver. Happens to see in the kitchen of this diner. Yeah, we've seen a couple scenes with Don up to this point. Brief scenes. He's That's freshly right. out of prison. He's out on parole. It reminds me a lot of the film Straight Time. I know. Because I, I was going to say that. Instead of his parole officer being a ball buster, it's the guy that he's working for, who happens to be Bud Court. Of Harold and Maude okay. fame. Wow. And also the life aquatic. All right. He's the company stooge. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So all of a sudden, they have a driver now out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get to the bank job. It's meticulously staged, expertly crafted. It's a huge, huge set piece. Yeah. It's, I don't know, what, like a half hour sequence? It goes on super long. Unbelievable. Acting on a tip from Van Zant's bodyguard, Hugh Benny, played by Henry Rollins, the LAPD intercepts the crew as they leave the bank, resulting in a massive shootout where Don Breeden, the new guy, and several officers are killed initially. And then it just keeps going. It keeps spilling out into the streets. There's just unbelievable sound going on. Rather than dubbing in the gunshots during the bank robbery shootout, man had microphones carefully placed around the set so that audio would be captured live and you can definitely tell a difference. Oh, yeah. It sounds different from a lot of other movies with That's gunshots. That's true, yeah. And these guys just have, like, heavy artillery. Yeah, it's absolute insanity. There's witnesses and bystanders everywhere in the way. The one Innocent thing, victims. I will say, these guys are just standing in the open for a lot of it. I know they're firing, like, heavy machine guns, but none of these cops can squeeze off a shot on one of these guys. Well, I don't think they're in good, like, sniper setup. So it's basically yeah. like they're just firing back and forth across the street and stuff 
the police also have to be careful because there there are so many people around. Yeah, and they're coming from both sides. Yeah, so they almost are shooting at each other. Right, right. with the guys in Which, the middle, and that does add another layer of just coolness to the action sequence because you've got Chris like trying to clear this path mowing down police cars but then having to like turn back and shoot at the guys that are pursuing from behind them yeah i'm assuming they must not have liked how sizemore was shooting his gun or something because he's there but they never go to him yeah yeah you see a lot of kilmer michael doesn't put himself in a good position to survive this it seems like he keeps drifting further away from the other two Uh, yeah he must be thinking he can sneak away mccully manages to escape with chris who ends up wounded Michael attempts to flee, but is shot dead by Hannah with just a ridiculous attempt at getting a little girl as a hostage. Seems really inappropriate for a police officer to take this shot. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Out of control. Yeah, yeah. Just an all-out bloodbath in the streets. Really? Like, cops are getting killed left and right. This scene, the shootout after the robbery, was shown to U.S. Marine recruits at mcrd san diego is an example of the proper way to retreat while under fire wow that's how detailed and meticulous man was it well and that's how like tactical these guys are it's almost like they should have built in more of a backstory of these guys being military guys or something well mccully definitely is. yeah yeah they mention it they yeah, mentioned about hannah has too to be. yeah mccully's got the marines that's tattoo. right yeah and then they mention hannah is as well which i guess is like a dual right thing that they both experienced it Kilmer was thrilled to learn that the moment in the gun battle where he runs out of bullets and rapidly changes his magazine is regularly shown to Marine recruits as an example of how to perform the action properly. Wow. Yeah. Hannah just, (laughs) this ain't going to be no hostage situation, baby. (laughs) Which he doesn't actually say, but freestyling it out there. Not really beholden to any rules and regs when it comes to police procedures. Now, you can't help but wonder if he's emotionally compromised for the mission because, really, Ted Levine seems like his kind of second-in-command and shot in the head right in front of him. Yeah. So you wonder if he's in the best place to make the best decisions or if uh, vengeance is on his mind a little bit. Because it does seem crazy to shoot a guy holding a little girl. Yeah, well... It all works out. Yeah, it I'm does. sure that girl won't be traumatized. No, no. Macaulay takes Chris to balding Jeremy Piven. That's right. Some sort of a really uh, not street doctor. Really not wanting to give up that button-up shirt. No. <laughs> With a mustache too. Yeah. It was really gonna be just a bad look for Jeremy Piven, but it ended up being okay. I think. Yeah, I think he was on a bad road. People just place. accept that guys lose their hair and if you're famous that there's a chance your hair is not real and everyone's just sort of like okay with it yeah moved on exactly i wish i was famous (laughs) (laughs) so people would be okay with what i want to do well just start you know wearing a piece (laughs) (laughs) like sylvio from the sopranos i'm sure people who don't know what you look like are picturing somebody like completely bald (laughs) (laughs) not even close recuperating chris is going to be put in the care of Nate, who, if you remember, it's been a while, is, was John Voight. While McCully goes looking for Trejo, the one who wasn't with them, believing him to be the one who sold them out, McCully arrives at Trejo's house to find him mortally wounded and his wife killed. Trejo reveals that it was Wayne at the behest of Van Zant. How asked, did Trejo get bested by this group? He asked McCully to finish him off as he's not going to make it. 
and his wife is already gone. What do you think they did to him? Laying there, like it seems like he's bleeding from the head. Well, they must have like bashed him and beat him up and stuff because they didn't want to kill him right away because they needed the info. That's right. But I don't really understand exactly how this all played out. Yeah, because first he said I guess, they had his wife. Yeah, I guess that's why he called and canceled because right. that's what was really going on. Yeah, yeah. So he goes back to the house thinking like he's going to be able to fix this, but they kill his wife anyway. And then, right. I don't know. Not Torture really sure him. the exact timeline. Yeah. McCully breaks into Van Zandt's mansion and shoots him dead. <laughs> He's like, where's Wayne Grow and Van Zandt? Which I think is a pretty good point. He's like, how the hell should I know? Did you try checking in like seedy motels where there's hookers? So he was scared to death and living out of his office because he was afraid of McCully. But then he just assumes everything's going to be fine. And then he's hanging out in his house watching some nondescript college hockey game Did in he L.A. Not pay attention to the biggest news story of the year that there was just a massacre in the streets and that these guys did not get arrested. He must be thinking he's, he, he's on the run. There's no way he's going to stop for me. Yeah, I guess so. So I'll watch this random college hockey <laughs> game in Los Angeles. <laughs> Whatever this even is. Yeah. Alan tricks Charlene and brings her into a hotel room with waiting cops who give her an option to get out from under it all, to betray Chris, to protect their son, and she reluctantly agrees. The other cops then find Hugh Benny and, through him, connect McCulley back to Wayne Grow, who they discover hiding out at a hotel. Hannah's unit decides to use him as bait to lure McCulley, yeah. unbeknownst to Wayne I you, think. You do sort of forget about the amount of pawns on this chessboard. Oh, yeah. You're like, holy shit. I'm kind of like Owen Wilson and Bottle Rocket about that their friend's kitchen. Like, oh, how did yeah. an asshole like him get it such a nice kitchen? I'm like, <laughs> how did f- an asshole like Wayne afford such a nice hotel room? I know. Walking around in a robe? Well, I'm assuming shit? he's got that Van Zant money now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. He's blowing it immediately. <laughs> McCully, preparing to flee the country, stops at Edie's house, who by now knows the truth as it's all over TV. She freaks out, but ultimately agrees to go with him. Because <laughs> she has nothing else going on. God Something that it. she has made clear time and time again. Yeah. At least pretend, Edie, like you have something going. The mystery is better. Well, in just a year or so, her stepdaughter is going to be terrorized by Marky Mark. <laughs> That was her rebound, William Peterson. (laughs) I think that's canon. Yeah, she moved to Seattle after this. Unexpectedly, you think you're building towards the end of the film. You think you're in the climax, and then you're just like, oh, okay, well now Hannah's wife, Justine, is just carrying on with this guy named Ralph. In the house. Played by Xander Berkeley, who we would remember as the douche from Candyman and just a punchable face. I love when Hannah's wife's name is uh, Justine, right? Yeah. I love when she's like, I have to degrade myself <laughs> with this fucking piece of trash. <laughs> this is my friend Ralph. You didn't tell me you were. Oh my God. Where's Laurie? She's at Lisa Beth's. Look, this has nothing to do with me. I didn't know. I'm terribly sorry. What are you sorry about? Sit down. Don't you even get angry? I'm angry. Oh. Yeah. I'm very angry, Ralph. You know, you can ball my wife if she wants you to. You can lounge around here on her sofa, in her ex-husband's dead tech, post-modernistic bullshit house if you want to. 
but you do not get to watch my fucking television set. Hannah makes a point to only care about the television set. Yeah. Just being well, like, you can fuck my wife. I you think can hang out in her house. Compartmentalizing the issue a little bit. I don't know. It's almost like a burn yeah. on Justine. Like, do whatever you want with her, but you are not watching my TV. <laughs> <laughs> and I love when he starts picking it up and you're like flipping out. In the background, you hear Justine go, oh, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> How much of a dud does Ralph seem like, too? Well, he is terrified. He sees yeah. the holstered gun. He probably knows immediately this guy's like a cop or something. He's like, oh, God. Yeah. He didn't even know there was a husband somehow. Or at least that's what he says. Nate arranges a new out for McCulley, but Chris has split going to look for Charlene, which disappoints Neil, and Nate is just like, it's a free country, brother. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's almost like Neil is acting like Nate was supposed to make him stay there. It's yeah. Like, well, first of all, do you know that his son rises and sets with Charlene? <laughs> Chris arrives to reconcile with Charlene as the cops wait to spring on him. And she comes out to the balcony of the hotel room and manages to slyly warn him away with a hand gesture. And he ultimately escapes. Even though they pull him over, he has the and he's I, cut his hair and he has that's a nice enough. license. That's enough. Yeah. Well, it was a different time. I cannot believe that this stuff and all these credentials are able to check out. The car, the ID. I think they set that up by him buying the dynamite or the explosives at the beginning from Gennaro from Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah. And he's holding up his license and the, Gennaro's like looking at it. Right. And he's like, okay. I think that's like what they're trying to say is like he's good at that kind of thing. Okay, yeah. But yeah, he's got some sort I'll of- accept it. You would think these guys would be like more questioning of this. In a pre-internet age. Yeah. I well, guess they can't hold this guy up forever. Another question that I had, which may be able to be answered, is how does he know where she is? Well, she's at their house, right? I thought that was a hotel room. Oh, maybe. I thought they were at the house. Uh, no. I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, I guess you're probably right. It doesn't seem like the same structure. Because they're like up on a floor. There's like a little balcony thing. I think their house is like one story, like a ranch. Yeah, house. if they're somewhere random, I have no idea how he would find her. Because... Alan takes her it, there. If they were somewhere random, how would he find her and not know that it's the cops are there? Well, Alan takes her there. Yeah. And she's surprised that there's cops inside. True. So I don't think it's like her own house. Right. But so it's either she's there because of Alan or there with the cops. I mean, how else does he find out that she's there? Unless she leaves a note or a message on their machine or something. Uh, oh, yeah. Does she not talk to him on the phone? They want her to call him, to lure him there. Yeah. Yeah, you might be right. There might be a phone call. 
they definitely want her to call him. I know that happens. This is one of those movies that I watched during that era that I like to refer to of like, oh, I never knew there was good movies. Yeah, yeah. In the late 90s, early 2000s. Don't think I fully appreciated it, and it was a long time before I ever saw it again. I have a similar journey with this one. And it's been a while. It's been a, a few years yeah, since I've same. watched this movie. Yeah. So, you know, we're trying to cram a lot of <laughs> learning is, in a couple of days here. And it is pretty long, and there are a lot of characters, and a lot happens. A busy holiday schedule, yeah. folks. We'll get to the schedule at the end of the episode, but you're going to get a couple more Either way, look, it's, in it, 2021. it is this heartwarming moment that she saves him, basically. Oh, yeah. It is cool. It's a cool moment. Yeah. And he escapes, and he's gone, and we never and see it. him again. Yep. So if there was ever going to be a Heat sequel, it would have been with his character, likely. They needed like the Stand By Me ending. Chris was killed over a gambling debt <laughs> one week later. Hannah, believing McCully to have already fled as the dual traps, both Charlene and Wayne Grow, have proved futile thus far, he essentially gives up, returning to his hotel room that he's now living in. Shockingly, he finds Justine's daughter, Lauren, who you may remember as Natalie Portman. Yeah. Floating in a bathtub full of red after a suicide attempt. Just maybe one of the most out-of-nowhere scenes in film history for, like, this juncture where you're at in the film to just throw this in there. Well, it's a double thing, yeah. Where you're putting it feels strange, yeah. and also it feels unearned. <laughs> I know. They've just said, yeah, she's mentally unstable, and she does freak out at the beginning of the movie about hair barrettes, but suicidal is such a jump and so unexpected and hannah has just moved into this hotel yeah i don't know how she even knew where he was yeah but okay that's okay it's we'll fine accept it. that's right he rushes her to the hospital and then hannah and justine somewhat reconcile after they learn that lauren has survived yeah it doesn't seem like they're really no i, I getting back together can... but it seems like they are at an understanding divorce is definitely on the table still she I doesn't think... want to but he's trying to make her understand that there's it not going to be. be anything different yeah. coming he's this like, is it just call laura dern from a marriage story right now because there's no coming back from this well she's the one that seems like she has money yeah that's he's true. paying out to two other ex-wives he's that's on his right. third marriage yeah <laughs> When he talks to Ralph, he says, like, this is her ex-husband's house, basically, that they're living in. Like, That's right. She's yes. got this money, and he's, like, hanging on by a thread. <laughs> God, how brutal would that be to be paying out to th for three marriages? I'll let you know someday. <laughs> Folks. <laughs> Nate calls McCulley with information regarding Wayne Grow, and even though he could very easily be in the clear, McCulley can't resist. With Edie in the car, he pulls off onto an exit to go kill the guy who fucked him over. Yeah. That's me. Plane's in the air now. We run out of time. On the driver's end, they still can't find nobody, so that's in the trust. One other thing. You asked, so I gotta tell you. The guy you wanted checked into the Hotel Marquis under Jameson, if you still give a shit. Which I figured you wouldn't. You figured right. So, so long, brother. You take it easy. You're home free. Take it easy. What is it? 
Nothing. I'm free. He's abandoned his restraint, his caution, all for revenge. He gets into the hotel, sets off a fire alarm, and pretending to be security, he bursts into Wayne Grove's room and kills him. But the room is being surveilled by the cops. And this yet- is my favorite part of the movie, this one little moment where he pulls the fire alarm so fire trucks are arriving, the police are arriving, all hell is breaking loose. Yeah. It cuts to Edie in the car, and her <laughs> face is so fucking funny. Oh, yeah. The desperation where she realizes, like, oh, God, what is happening? Right. She's just waiting for him to come back. <laughs> that face. And, like, more and more cars just keep pulling up to this scene. Yeah, it's pandemonium right. outside, and she's like, oh, my God. Yeah. It's crazy for Neil. He was home free. The New Zealand plant, he just had to kill this dude for fucking this all up. Yeah. Yeah, to your point earlier, I mean, it's like this guy has a code, but it seems like he breaks all of his own rules. Well, when he tells Edie about what happened when she's confronting him about the truth, about who he is, yeah, he does say, like, yeah, my friend Michael was killed. Right. So he's pissed about people dying. It's not just about, for like, sure. oh, this job got fucked up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a personal element to it that he's tried to keep out, but there's too many factors going on now. He can't do it anymore. While at the hospital, Hannah is alerted, and he flies by helicopter, somehow arriving just in time to spot McCulley trying to get back to Edie. It doesn't seem like he would get there quick enough. No, he wouldn't (laughs) get there quick enough. Plus, he would never chase him down like he does in a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't really envision Al Pacino running that fast when... De Niro has, like, such a huge head start. Right. But okay. McCulley sees Hannah, too, amidst the chaos of people and fire trucks. And this is sort of the crucial moment. It goes back to, the like, the line of the movie. Yeah. If the heat's on, you got to just drop whatever it is and go. And he adheres to his code. He walks away, Which leaving is actually, Edie stunned. Yeah, it's kind of like one of the, I think it's one of the season finales of Mad Men, where uh, Don is going to, like, take off with that teacher or whatever. Like sitting outside the house in the car, and then he like goes in and ends up talking to Betty, and then he just talks to her all night, and the teacher just just left in the car, and that's it. That's the end of their relationship. <laughs> and it's kind of similar here. I mean, Edie's just just left in the car, and this is this is it. Well, in a way, he's protecting her. I guess the cops are way too distracted to even notice her. They're fixated on him, so she hopefully is gonna wake up and just drive away and never be linked with this. Yeah. We're heading into the main end sequence of the movie. I kind of wish Neil did get away. And the the big blow was him abandoning Edie. He's going to try to contact her from New Zealand, but she just never answers (laughs) it again. And he just lost the one connection he ever had. All right. Well, having like a sad emo story specifically designed for you is maybe not going to have the impact that this ending has for everyone else. Okay. Well, that's my (laughs) ending. Big closure. Heat, the final cut by Matt Crosby. (laughs) Hannah pursues McCulley onto the tarmac at LAX. The two stalk each other, opening fire. Hannah, now armed with a shotgun that he grabbed off of some guy. There's planes flying overhead. It's a huge scene. The enormity of it, the scope of it is so big. It looks awesome. Is Neil still on track to make it to his plane? Unclear. Yeah, I was getting lost in that. I'm not even sure how you would know exactly where he is or or where he's running to, but he's just trying to get away at this point. Hannah then switches over to a handgun when he runs out of shells for the shotgun. There's all those little outbuildings 
and they're setting up this suspense of like ducking around all of the outbuildings those like square little brick buildings right and the planes are landing coming in overhead so then like there'll be a sudden flood of lights everywhere and then the plane will pass by and then it'll be dark again so they're like plunging into darkness and then back into light it's really cool oh yeah it goes on like way longer than you would think too where you're like, okay, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the suspense is building, and then all of a sudden it's silent, and then all then here comes a score, like the musical score starts coming on, and you're like, okay, <laughs> so there's more happening now. Right, it's kind of disorienting, actually. Hannah shoots Macaulay several times in the chest, and then takes his hand as Macaulay dies of his wounds. Yeah, it's and like it. it's set up like Macaulay has the drop on him, but because. Vince out of the corner of his eye sees like the shadow. Yeah, move. because like, the so lights quick. flood in, right. and then there's the shadow. So it's moving. like it's really like almost by chance that Vince yeah. ended, was able to get the kill. They had to make Neil look strong still. Yeah, well he he would choose this. He says as his last dying words, "I told you I was never going back." Yeah, that's right. In terms of prison, folks, it's been a rough time in L.A. for poor Edie. Yeah. She's still sitting outside <laughs> that hotel, yeah, really, to this day. Yeah, <laughs> waiting. I should look back. That was the best boyfriend I ever had. Yeah. I'd like to swoop in. Yeah. <laughs> the murder of Wayne Grow is awesome. We we went past it pretty quick. It looks pretty cool and everything, and he's like gasping for air because he gets like shot in the oh, lungs yeah. at first. But then it goes back and it has that like cool frame because he's sitting like right under the windows and like the red right. halo of blood. Oh yeah. Him. And a lot of the violence is very like realistic. Yeah, it looks awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so who comes off stronger by the end of the movie, Pacino or De Niro? You know, Pacino and he's the last man standing. Right, but I meant like in a <laughs> in a real life sense. What do you mean? In the like the performance? Yeah. Just who comes off better in the film. Ugh. I think everybody's gonna remember Pacino's performance way more. It's way more charisma, way more eccentric, borderline over the top. Yeah, I think the thing, though, that you have to remember is that you need a guy like De Niro yeah. I to think, bounce off of for Pacino's one to work. Well, I think what the praise of the De Niro performance is how much you root for this guy. He's a criminal mastermind. He does order like the execution of people at times in this movie. But I find myself way more invested in him as an antihero and really rooting for him. I want the ED New Zealand meetup thing to work out. Yeah, I think man successfully captures the soul of these characters and makes you care about all of them. And I think it's a testament to the performance, too. We've talked about it before, certain films where you're able to introduce characters with just an economy of words and actions, and you just know immediately everything about them. And when you have this many characters, even though it's two hours and 50 minutes, you still have to accomplish a lot. Absolutely. In a short amount of time. Because you can't spend 20 minutes on Ashley Judd's character. You just can't. Wish, it's though. not going to work. <laughs> I mean to tell this specific oh, yeah. story. You can't spend 20 minutes on Dennis Haysbert. You can't spend 20 minutes on Wayne Grow. You can't spend 20 minutes on William Fickner. You have to like get these things across quick. And they accomplish it all. Yeah, you do feel like the heaviness of even smaller... Like, even Tom Sizemore's wife, they linger on her when she f- realizes that he's dead from the news coverage and anything. And there's a sadness there, because this is a guy that could have just been done. 
Yeah. And he was like a family man beloved by his wife. Right. There's just this added layer of heaviness to it. Other than Chris, it's sort of strange how much the criminals have better marriages than Hannah. Like, oh, yeah. Trejo is like, I want to die because my wife is dead. That's like, right. I, I have to die now. And Michael had a great relationship with his wife, who seemed super happy. Obviously, with Chris, you know, it was oh, sort yeah. of a mess. <laughs> but, it's a house of cards there. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We don't know as much about the cops, like Wes Studi and Ted Levine. They sort of are more cutouts of cops. You don't, you don't really know. True. They don't have a lot of depth yeah. to them. But that's how you make a story like this work, because inherently the audience is supposed to think the good guys are the cops, so you have to spend a little bit more time right. rounding out the, the villains to get that balance. Yeah, and the, the whole thing is anchored by the two lead performances, which are, are, of course, unbelievable. Top-notch. Folks, that's Heat. That's for Bill. Thanks for the listener request. It was about time we got to some Michael Mann. We knew it was going to happen eventually. Yeah, I'd love to do some of his 80s stuff at some point. Oh, yeah. If we keep doing this podcast, we'll definitely get to more Michael Mann. I I can guarantee that. So, again, if, like Bill, you have a listener request and like us to get to something specific, we are opening up listener requests for everyone including people who have already submitted them as i said we'll try to do one a month at most probably less but at most so you would get into a line we'll get to it when we can but just know that it is open for anyone including people who've already submitted them i think we're going to skip out on recommendations for now because we have a lot going on we just did a massive blade runner 2049 app this one is long as well and then we are coming right back at you with an episode on Christmas Day. Wow. That is the plan. So Happy holidays to you, the listener. Similarly to when we released the Shawshank Redemption on Thanksgiving, it'll probably be around midday on Christmas. Yeah. So and for those of you that were just looking forward to family time, we've got something else for you. And then we'll close out the year on New Year's Eve. So you'll be looking at a Saturday followed by the next Friday, probably. Something like that. And that will close out 2021. And then, who knows, we'll probably take a a minor break to kick off 2022. Yeah. Like a one-week deal or something like that. Okay. That's the future. This is the present, reminding you to... Follow us on Twitter, at GreatestPod. That's where you can send us your listener request and also request a sticker for free that we will mail to you. So let us know if you'd like one. I've sent a decent amount of them out this year. Yeah, I still don't even have any of the new ones. <laughs> I'll bring some over. How many times have we had this conversation? I know, I just always forget. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review, please. That would be great. A nice little Christmas present for your favorite podcast. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Christmas to us. You can also find us on Podbean or various other places, probably. We're out there floating around. Tell a friend. Tell your family at Christmas time about the show. Also, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. Making big end-of-the-year pushes for check-ins. Yeah. Just found out that I'll be able to work from home the rest of the <laughs> year, so maybe I'll pump those numbers back up. Rejoice. <laughs> Things have been sagging for a while. I don't think that we're going to do a best of 2021 or our top of the year list. I, I don't just, want to. Just seems like we're not quite ready. That might have to be, we might have to hold off on another year. Just haven't been able to really see as much as I want. 
I was saying to you before we started recording, I've seen a lot of people's best of the year, like their top 10 lists, and half the movies I've never even heard of. Obviously, sure. a lot of foreign films in the mix that well, I, I'm not that. even aware of. But okay, it's rough. We we straddle that line between the obscure and the mainstream. I can't go as obscure as some of these people. Yeah, well, some of them, I think, just like the attention of having oh, that on their most list. most definitely. Yeah. I think that'll do it for us. Thank you for listening, and we... We'll talk to you on Christmas. for me to sit back here in this studio looking at a guy out here hollering my name when last year I spent more money on spilt liquor in bars from one side of this world to the other than you made. You're talking to the Rolex wearing, diamond ring wearing, kiss stealing, woo, wheeling, dealing, limousine riding, jet flying, Son of a gun, and I'm having a hard time 